The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, I don't know if it's like this in your career field, but in the one that I work in, there are books and books and books and TED Talks and podcasts and books and articles and blogs and Zoom calls about leadership. Leadership this, leadership that. Leadership this some more, developing leaders, leading leaders, 10 keys to fruitful leadership, six steps to productive leadership, how to be a good leader, how to avoid being a bad leader, leadership, leadership, leadership. It's all leadership, all the time, it's leadership everywhere. And I wonder if actually we can learn a few things from this overemphasis on leadership. One, it's apparently a lucrative industry, and if you write a book on it, you're guaranteed to sell it, it seems like. That's, that's the first cynical take. But the second thing I wonder if we can observe about this phenomenon is if it tells us something about human nature, that there's a, a nearly universal kind of essential human ache for a leader, for a good leader, even a great leader. I mean, think about some of the stories that we love, some of the things that you dressed up as on Tuesday. How many of our legends and our beloved books tell the story that goes something like this? There is a promised one of old who will unite the hearts of his people, he will overthrow the enemy, and he will restore the fortune and former glory of that people. It's like this archetypal, primal kind of story. It tells us that we crave to be led It's like we have this deep awareness that the world isn't as it should be, and so we have a desire for the world to be made right through a leader, through someone who has the power to restore what we know has been lost, some leader to lead us into glory. We long for what C.S. Lewis called a far-off country, and we long for someone to take us there. And the Bible story is, of course, no exception to these other stories. In the opening pages of the narrative, there's a promise of the arrival of a leader, of a seed, a king, who would crush the snake, who would bring peace, who would win the obedience and the hearts of the people, and who would bring us home, restore what was lost. The promise is expanded and clarified as the story progresses. And ultimately, what we'll see today is another promise, another covenant, another promise from God about such a leader, a king whose throne would last Forever. 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 Now the plan today is we're going to consider three kings briefly. Some kings you've probably heard of. The stories of these kings, of course, span hundreds of pages in the Bible, so we're going to do the abridged version of these kings. But we're going to look most deeply at one particular king, and we're going to look at three different passages. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 16, so you can put a finger there. 1 Samuel 17, you can put a finger there. And then 2 Samuel 7, you can put a finger there. And then a couple of other passages we'll, we'll have for us. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel 16. Now, as a, by way of reminder, we have been in a teaching series called The True Story of the Whole World, where we've been observing the way that the story progresses over the story of the Bible. In chapter 1, we saw God's purposes to have a people in his presence, in his place, in the garden. Chapter 2, we saw the fall, the fracture that was introduced into everything through human rebellion. We've been living in exile and conflict ever since. Chapter 3, we saw the promise that God made to Abraham, where God reveals himself to be a covenant-making God, a self-obligating God to Abraham. It says, through this man's family is going to come a blessing that's going to undo the curse, undo the fracture that was introduced in chapter 2. 
Then in chapter 4, we read the story of the Exodus. Abraham's family grows, it expands, they're exiled in Egypt. God responds mercifully by raising up Moses to rescue his people. And as a friend said this week, the story of the Exodus is the saving event in the Old Testament. It becomes hugely important in the stories Israel tells about itself. Then last Sunday we saw the giving of the law, the law Excuse me, where God calls his people to live a life of obedience before God, marked off as his kingdom of priests, to be a different kind of nation and a different kind of people ruled by God himself. Now, what happens next in the story? Well, there's a few things that does take place between the giving of the law and the arrival of the kings. For instance, we have the story of the wilderness wanderings, where the people of Israel spend 40 years in the desert before they enter the land that is promised to Abraham. God commands Joshua to lead his people into the promised land, and he commands a conquest of Canaan to purify the land from wickedness and idolatry. But then we have the story of Judges. The people don't obey the Lord and don't drive out the Canaanites, at least not completely. And it's kind of like when you don't go the full 10 days on antibiotics and it flares back up. We we sort of have this dynamic in the story of the Judges. Evil persists in the land and for a period of 200 years, that's like as old as America, God raises up Judges, proto-kings, temporary chieftains to lead his people. The book of Judges is a tragic story of cycles of violence and rebellion and peace and then violence and rebellion once again. Judges actually ends on kind of an ominous note. It says at the end of the book, sort of kind of with a shrug, there's no king to rule the people. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so as you read through Judges, you kind of wonder, all right, is, are, are we being prepared to be introduced to a king? Then we arrive in 1 Samuel. Enter Samuel. The final judge, and a good judge, and a prophet of God, leading the nation for God. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel look to the surrounding nations, and what do they demand? A king. Now this is kind of an interesting, maybe even a little bit challenging thing to sort of work through. Because on the one hand, God, as he tells them in 1 Samuel 8, God says, I am the king of my people. I am your king. You don't need a king because I'm God. I'm your king. But on the other hand, we've had a promise of a king in places like, well, Genesis chapter 3, more explicitly in Genesis chapter 49, when God says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Even in Deuteronomy 17, we're giving laws surrounding how kings are to function. Judges ends saying the people need a king. And so the question is, like, is a king a good thing for the people of Israel, or is the king a bad thing? Now, this is, again, not the first mention or even notion of kings in the Old Testament, Way back in Genesis 1, we are actually introduced to a king whose name was Adam. Adam was to rule over God's world, and of course, Adam fails in that task. But there's a kind of kingliness to Adam, and by extension, humanity with him. Humans are to be these kind of kingly representatives of God in the world. And from that story, and as the story progresses, we see that, well, if there's to be a king over God's people, he was to be ultimately submissive to God. He was to be a king to the Lord, to honor the Lord. Actually, this was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world, that the king himself wasn't God, that the king didn't have carte blanche to lead and rule however he saw fit. In Israel, the king is accountable to the law, which means the king isn't God. He's accountable to God. Again, this was really revolutionary in the ancient world, a revolutionary kind of notion of kingship. So there's a way to have a king that honored the Lord, but the Bible pulls no no punches about human nature and about human kings in particular. In Samuel 8, God warns, your desire for a king is going to result in, well, kings doing what kings do. What do they do? Oppress. God says, you want a king? 
Are you sure you want a king? Because you know what kings do? They conscript your sons for war. They use your daughters as, as bakers and cooks and enlist them for service. You won't be free. That's what human kings do. The problem with human kings is they're human, right? Again, there's a, there's a way to do kingship in a way that honors God. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, with this demand, this request, it is born out of a desire to be like the nations. They don't want a king who serves under the Lord. Rather, they want a king instead of the Lord. And so in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, God graciously, I don't know, God grants the request. Maybe we're intended to see this as God handing them over to their desires. We're told God gives them a man who's regal in appearance. He's handsome, and he's tall, and he's imposing, and he's handsome again, it says. Mentioned twice how handsome he is. This man looks like a king. And it works out for a stretch, actually. This first king is strong, and he's a good king, and he's a good man, and he leads God's people in victory. Things seem to be looking up. Maybe they've been given a king, and maybe he's a good one. This king's name? Saul. Saul is, in many respects, initially a good king. Again, we're told he looks like a king. He's tall and he's handsome. Broad shoulders, probably a great, you know, mustache. Probably, you know, just the right kind of amount of five o'clock shadow, probably blue eyes, probably around five, ten and a half, 205 pounds or so, (laughs) would be my assumption. You know, kingly looking. Saul's kingliness gets the best of him. It's interesting as you read through the story, this man, it seems like it's going to work out for the nation of Israel. He starts to believe his own hype in a way. It's like he starts to read his own newspaper clippings. And the result is in 1 Samuel 13 and in 1 Samuel 15, after getting a little big for his britches, he offers a sacrifice unlawfully. He doesn't obey the Lord completely. And the result is the Lord regrets that he makes Saul king and he takes the kingdom away from Saul. This is actually the third time that we're in, in this series that we've seen the Lord regret something. Genesis chapter 6, it says the Lord regrets that he made humanity because of how corrupt humanity is. In Exodus chapter 32, the Lord regrets that he called Israel because of how corrupt they are. In 1 Samuel, chapters 13 to 15, the Lord regrets Samuel because of his corruption. Nevertheless, God is gracious. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now God has rejected Saul because of his pride and his rashness and disobedience. And so God commands Samuel to go to the obscure little rural town of Bethlehem. He says, I've selected a king from there to be Saul's successor. Skip to verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And and I just love this. And and he said, Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I got one son. He's he's just a young dude. He's the run of the litter. He's keeping the sheep. You don't even need to worry about him. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. In verse 12, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. This king's name? David. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The shepherd boy is now to be the shepherd king. And it's hard to overstate how important the character of David becomes. I mean, he is on par with figures like Abraham and Moses and then some. David becomes a key figure in the story of the Bible. And it's hard to talk about the character of David without going to one particular story. One, I guess, probably always comes to mind when you think of David. And that's found in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17. Let's look at that. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Correct. (laughs) Now the Philistines gathered their armies to battle. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now, just by way of reminder, if you're not familiar with the story, David has been anointed as king, but there's an already not yet element at play in David's kingship. Saul is still functioning as king. David has been anointed as the next king. He's not yet been fully installed as king. So we're kind of looking at David in this in-between period. Verse 3. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. This is over nine feet tall, which is tall. Verse 5. Goliath had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's 150 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 20 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. In other words, he's an absolute unit. (laughs) Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul, who was also mentioned as being tall, interesting, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So the Philistine champion, a giant, Goliath, invites them, come and fight me. I defy Israel and Israel's God this day. Verses 12 through 17, David's brothers were told that those brothers we've already seen are fighting for Saul. Jesse tells David, again, the youngest, just a boy, to be a food runner back and forth between caring for the sheep. And for 40 days... Goliath, morning and evening, challenges Israel until, verse 23, Goliath makes his challenge, and this time, David hears him. Verse 26, David is aghast. He says, who is this guy? Who does he think he is defying God and God's army? Skip to verse 32. And David, the boy, says to the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, 
Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or bear, took a lamb from the, took a lamb from the flock and went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Let's just take a moment to acknowledge just how baller that is. Notice, I mean, the fact that Saul is mentioned as being tall, you know, maybe six foot four, six foot five, in a, in a world of people that were five foot four, five foot five. Saul is the giant of Israel. And when he's confronted with the giant of the Philistines, he dismays. He is afraid. You would expect him to be Israel's champion. You would expect him to be Israel's warrior king, Saul. But no, like in previous stories, once again, the giants disturb and, 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 and make the people of Israel shrink back from before them, except for David. He says, the Lord has spared me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. This will be no different. Verse 38. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. It's kind of a comical scene. The armor doesn't fit. It's too big and bulky for David. It doesn't work for him. And so instead, David takes a staff, stones, and a slingshot. Put aside your familiarity with the story for a moment and consider the absurdity of what's about to take place. A young man, a a preteen probably, going to do battle with a Philistine champion, nine foot tall, with a slingshot. The absurdity isn't lost on Goliath. Verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath is like, You kidding me? This is your champion? This is who you sort of walk out to do battle against me? I will make you food for the vultures. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to to the ground. A small stone, like a seed, striking a head. A few verses later, using the giant sword to behead the giant, a giant clothed in armor-like scales. Interesting. David achieves victory, not by his power, but because the hand of the Lord was indeed with David. And this is kind of the moment when David becomes the king, the shepherd king of Israel, who triumphs over the Philistines, 
who rescues the lamb from the grip of the lion, from the grip of the bear, from the grip of the serpent, given victory by God over his enemies. So if you know the story, how does Saul ultimately take to David's emergence? Not very well, right? Like an aging quarterback whose team just drafted the young guy in the first round. Remember, Saul had good years, but he tragically disqualifies himself. And the rest of 1 Samuel is Saul hunting David down, jealous and enraged that this man is king. And there's story after story of David evading Saul's plots and attempts to kill him. Eventually, Saul passes away, and David is made king. Now, of course, David is a good king in a lot of ways. He's the un-Saul. He's the great king. Again, it's hard to overstate his importance. But what do we know about human kings? Human kings are, at the end of the day, human. And David fails spectacularly by taking Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed. David's confronted by the prophet Nathan and writes one of the most powerful things ever penned in the Psalm of Confession, Psalm 51. And even after this, even in spite of David's tremendous failure, once again, the Bible story slows down into a promise, a gracious promise of God, a covenant between God and man, even in spite of David's failures. Flip now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to what God promises to David. This is absolutely key. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, words, when you pass away, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, listen to this, God promises unilaterally to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is often what's referred to as the Davidic covenant, the covenant to David. David's house, David's throne will last forever, God promises. You you will have a son who will rule forever and ever and ever. A son from your very own body, David, will rule forever. Great David would have an even greater son, both son of David and son of God, whose throne would be forever. He would be a king who ultimately bears the iniquity of his people, but the steadfast love of God would never depart from him. And so we read this and we wonder, Has this king arrived? We read about the stories of David. We see the way David triumphs over Goliath. We see David's bravery. We see how the Lord was with David. And then we read this promise and it's like, man, it's going to get even better. Great David is going to have a greater son, a human agent that God uses to fulfill his promises to ultimately crush the serpent. God's going to restore humanity as king over God's good world through this son. And David does indeed have a son. That son, of course, itself is a story of redemption. The son comes from the unfaithfulness with Bathsheba. He has a son, and we wonder, could this be the king that's promised here? He's wise. He builds the temple. 
He leads in prosperity, yet unseen in Israel. He is strong and powerful, the promised son of David. In 1 Kings 1, David's son is anointed as king. In 1 Kings 4, we're told that everyone lived under their own vine, which is a picture of freedom and prosperity. This king's name? Solomon. As you read about Solomon and wonder, has the kingdom come finally? You wonder, has the serpent's head finally been crushed? Has evil been vanquished? Is God finally present with his people in his place? Has the promised house for the Lord, promised in 2 Samuel, has it been built through Solomon? Has the far-off country finally come near? The answer? No. We'll consider Solomon and his temple a bit more next week. But 1, King 11, 1 Kings 11 rather, records for us Solomon's downfall. Solomon ultimately loved women, and they led him astray, and he compromised with foreign gods. What's more, Solomon becomes oppressive, a taskmaster. All the things that God warned against in 1 Samuel 8, Saul commits. And so like a sealdor who defeats Sauron but succumbs to the ring, right? This promised king, or, or the one who looks like the promised king, is himself compromised. And what's the result? For the next 400 years... Cycles, not unlike the judges, of flawed kings, some that are outright horrendous, partial obedience at best, and idolatry. And the result is the kingdom is shattered and tattered and scattered and exiled. And we're left wondering, will there ever be a king? Will there ever be a king? Will there ever come a leader who can bring the far-off country near? Let's pause here for a second and ask this question. How do these stories intersect with our stories? What do we make of the stories of the king? The first thing I'd say that we can sort of take away from this is this. These stories actually show us the blessing of good leaders. These stories show us the blessing of good leaders. You know, again, it's amazing that God chooses to lead us through human agents. And King David, in his final words, he actually has a word for those who would lead in 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 3. David says, when, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. As a culture, we assume that categorically authority is bad, and there's often good reasons for that. Many of us have had heartbreaking, absolutely gutting experiences in places like local churches. But the scriptures testify that good leadership is a good thing. It's a blessing, actually. David says it's like the morning sun or the life-giving rain. Good leaders are to be celebrated. Good husbands, good dads, good moms, good pastors, good police officers, good teachers, good bosses, good presidents, good kings are a blessing. And we should be thankful for good leaders. And if we're in a position of leadership, we should strive to be good leaders. Your authority is given to you for the well-being of those entrusted to you. So in some ways, it's helpful for us to see these stories and to walk away as those who have been given leadership with a resolve to go be morning sun and spring rain for people. Go lead those people well. Learn from the example of Saul, David, and Solomon, both positive and negative. Learn from these men. See that good leaders are a blessing. But the second thing I think that we sort of take away from these stories is that these stories show us the limits of even great leaders. These stories show us the limits of even great leaders. What's the problem with human kings? At the end of the day, they're human. 
Political systems are imperfect. They will, they will be exploited by human corruption. Good and great leaders curb this, of course, but imperfectly because good and great leaders are still humans. Every leader eventually shows themselves to be infected and complicit in the great mess of things. We need to keep our expectations pretty low. Princes and horses and chariots make for bad gods. But here's this. Here's the most essential thing that you and I can walk away with this morning. These stories anticipate the arrival of the king. After Solomon, for the next 400 years, these cycles of partial obedience and idolatry and and, and failure after failure, the result of the kingdom being shattered and tattered and scattered and exiled, the question of whether or not there will be a king is answered. After generations of chaos, it is answered by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11 when he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He says, imagine like a stump that's been cut off. And imagine a tree that was once large and vibrant and fruitful. It is now a stump. It's a forgotten stump. It's been left there. It seems dead. It seemed like it was dead ages ago. He says, but behold, you know what I see? I see a little sprig of green beginning to surface, beginning to break through from that stump. The hope for a king isn't lost. Two chapters earlier in Isaiah 9, the prophet envisions the arrival of this king. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. For the libertarians here, this is ever-extending reach of government, and it's a good thing because it's this king. We can talk more about that over coffee later. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The promised son of David from ages past. Could it be? Could it be that this king is going to arrive? Could it be that this king has finally arrived? The question is lingering and Isaiah dials it up with intensity and with hope. And then when a group of shepherds outside that same obscure little rural town of Bethlehem who are keeping watch over the flock by night see the night sky suddenly pierced with unimaginable brightness like the glory of the Lord shining around them, they hear a voice. An angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all peoples. For unto you is born this day, today, now, right around the corner in the city of David, a Savior, the King. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then a multitude of the heavenly host, a sky full of celestial beings, innumerable, singing with deafening intensity, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This king's name? I think you know it. And some of you decorated your house in his honor this week, prematurely. This is the promised king of old who would unite the hearts of his people, who would overthrow the enemy, who would restore the fortune and former glory of his people. A king without warts, a king without failure, a king, listen to this, who is both David's son and God's son, a human king and divine king, 
And in 1 Samuel 8, when we're giving the warning by God that I'm your king, you don't need a human king, somehow he does both and brings them together. And the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the prince of peace, the snake crusher, great David's greater son, Jesus. Bring out the banners. Where are the banners? The marching banners, the big purple ones. Hear me, all of you, all of us, hear this and rejoice. Jesus is king. Full stop. No qualifications. Jesus is king. He has fulfilled what he promised so long ago. To Adam and Eve in the garden, to David, through the prophet Isaiah, Christ has come and he is king. Jesus is king. His kingdom has come. He reigns over all nations in the United States, in Mexico, in India, in Turkey, in South Africa, in Ghana. We make disciples of this king from every nation. We live in obedience to this king and joyful submission to this king. His kingdom has come. Jesus is king already. But like David, Jesus is also king, well, not yet. At least not in its fullness. We await the final arrival of our king when he is coming to set all things right and bring that far-off country near to us. And so like the animals raising a glass to Aslan during the white witch's rule, we celebrate the true king, even in the midst of a winter without Christmas. Like Robin Hood, loyalist to King Richard, while Prince John selfishly rules in the meantime, we celebrate and we hope that Jesus is king, that Jesus will one day finally and fully install his kingdom, and it will increase and go on forever and ever and ever. Where there's no evil, there's no death, there's no sin, he will usher in the day that we all hope for. The good leader that we all ache for is Jesus. And so maybe you come in here this morning weak and wounded. What I have to say to you is, see the majesty and the grandeur of this king who cannot die. Who entered into death on the one side and came out the other with its sword in its hand and death's head in the other. A king whose kingdom cannot fail that will be established forever. This is the goodest of good news. But there's a warning here for us as well. To bad leaders. We are, we are accountable for our leadership. To all people, we are accountable to Jesus. If you are not a Christian, there's a warning here. That you should turn from your sin and repent and believe and be pardoned by Jesus. The incredible thing about this king is this king comes and first dies for his people. In 2 Samuel 7, it says that David's son will be stricken when he commits iniquity. We see the fullness of this come to pass when we see that Jesus did not commit iniquity, but he took on the iniquities of his people and was stricken in their place. The good news about King Jesus is that though he is a king who rules with might and justice, he is a king who is merciful and eager to extend pardon. And the word for you this morning, if you are not a believer, is to repent and believe and turn to Christ who suffered for your sin. We always invite folks who are maybe wrestling with some of these things or the implication of these things. Uh, after service, I'll be in this lobby here. We'll be happy to talk. And of course, the person who invited you this morning, I know, would love to talk with you about what it means to offer your life to King Jesus and be forgiven by him. The next few moments, we're going to take some time to pray and just reflect for a moment. Reflect on what the scriptures have to say. Reflect on some of the things we've heard this morning. And then we're going to stand and sing a few more songs rejoicing in the kingship of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray for a deeper understanding of who you are. We pray that we would love you. Not the idea of you, not the concept of you, not books about you, not arguments about you, but we would love you, Jesus, and we would devote ourselves to you, who is real and who is near and who is alive, who hears us, who sees us, and who knows us. We pray, Lord Jesus, for strength to be faithful. We pray in these next few moments as we think about what what it means for you to be king over all nations. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, just lift our eyes for a moment above our circumstances and our difficulties and find ourselves strengthened with the knowledge of who you are. We pray all of this in your name.